I'm gonna be a perfect parent. I'm calling my shot right now. I mean, I already know what it's like to run a business, right? Sure, I get an LLC, lacks a certain consciousness, and a baby is, well, alive. But both of these things require nurturing, right? And, and both require balance. You know, too little nurturing and they suffer neglect, too much nurturing and they become overly dependent. There isn't a one size fits all solution when it comes to running a business or raising a kid. So I should be great, right? Well, of course, you know, all jokes aside here in, in B2B SaaS, you need a strategy that can adjust to make sure everything is running smoothly. With sales in particular, there are different schools of thought on the best way to go about it. And in this episode, we'll discuss the agile sales method with one of my really, really good friends, Dimitar, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. I avoid saying his last name, Stenemarov, Stenemarov. Dimitar is one of the best dressed people in B2B SaaS. He's also one of the most helpful folks in SaaS. And that's why I love always hanging out with him and talking to him. Dimitar and I sat down a few years ago when he was at the time CEO of Heresy, a company he founded around the agile sales method. He was gracious enough to share the wisdom he's learned from growing a business and nurturing it through sales. And so all that and more coming up next. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Dimitar from Stack Overflow and Heresy dives deep on agile sales. We'll talk about having a clear understanding of value, consolidating talent and tools, the efficiency of agile sales, maintaining target accounts, and how to navigate funding. After you finish the episode, make sure you check out the show notes for an in-depth field guide focused on what we went over. page right now is yeah. you know it doesn't even mention it and we had someone so one of our kind of early big clients churn because they were HubSpot oh really they were paying they were using both simultaneously yeah. and you know we were like really happy because their sales team started using heresy way more than they have yeah. and we were like yeah. it's working and then they hired a new CEO and he was like what the f like I'm paying we're paying like two licenses which yeah. is which is okay because we're getting yeah. value from both but the problem was because the salespeople abandoned the source of truth, which was, you know, HubSpot, because yeah. marketing works in it. He was like, either they integrate with us or we're going to churn. And we're like, oh, see you later. Yeah. And two months later, they came back. Oh, that's great. So On Salesforce? Or no, no, no. Standalone. standalone again. Um, yeah. I think the head of sales is pushing for Salesforce, but I don't think they can justify it just it's, yet. It's like crazy. It's, it's, yeah. So we've looked at it again recently because our sales team's growing and it was just like, which instance doesn't like, even make sense because <laughs> you know we had so we we had an onboarding last week where you know say Salesforce as you would know from the price there down oh, yeah. they charge you extra so if you like on professional below you don't get the API calls for free you have yeah. to basically pay or like really know how to negotiate and uh, we had someone who was a professional we didn't really know and you know we kind of did the onboarding and everything else and then we're kind of doing the setting up the pilots yeah. click <clears throat> Yeah. You know, you need to pay and um, so it's pretty frustrating, but yeah. yeah. Well it's part of that ecosystem. Are you gonna go across CRMs or are you gonna stick because it sales it's big enough that you possibly, can possibly yeah. I mean I don't right? know, I don't know. I mean right now we've gone from like charging, you know, fifty dollars per seat to like the last one we did was hundred and twenty five per seat. Yeah. Just because, you know, again, like looking at the willingness to pay, but also, you know, there's a bit more work that goes into all of this. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to, you know, support a larger, more established organization, which is customized Salesforce over the years, you basically need to do some bespoke mapping so that Heresy and Salesforce work in sync. So they're uh, paying for a Salesforce seat and for a Heresy seat? Yeah. Okay. But 
I think if you've committed, if you've made the investment, then you have, you know, a number of other services plugged into Salesforce, which is where you really get the value, yeah. you know. And your sales team is not really getting as much out of Salesforce as they should do. Yeah. You know, your forecasting sacks, you know, they don't use it, etc. But you're committed, then you kind of you can justify paying a little bit more sure. to actually get the results that you want. Yeah. So it kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. We kind of knew this as well from the beginning, but we were like, let's do the sexier thing and let's do yeah. the thing that we know for the long term is going to guarantee steady growth. Because yeah. like one of the things I learned at Stack was that, you know, even like with a fairly, I don't want to say mediocre, but like, a, yeah. you know, like a, not the best of products, but a really good sales team, yeah. you can brute force from A to B fairly sure. quickly. But then once to B, you know, you had a plateau where, you know, it takes forever to get to C. Yeah. And, you know, we had like Michael from Trello as an advisor sure. and, you know, a bunch of other people that were saying, if you can do hockey stick curve like build up the user base it's always easier to you know monetize like three percent of a million than you know make thirty thousand people pay blah 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 blah. so is that what is that what you're thinking now well this is what we did this is what we tried but it just takes forever and you know if you if you're michael and joe and you have like fog creek and you can subsidize the business time yeah and you know you've got the reputation and you know the the following Great. I also think if you're in a different space, like Trello, like the productivity apps have been around forever. Yeah. I don't know if they would call it a productivity app, but I mean, they invented, you know, the card, the card aspect. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. So I was like really skeptical when they first launched it, you know, because I, I could just Trello. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I could just uh, join Stack when they launched. And I was like, because I'm like obviously intimately familiar with Kanban. And I was like, OK, I get it, you know, but big deal. And then. I don't know, I wouldn't say they've invented it, but they definitely did a brilliant job at, yeah. you know, taking something which is well established in the developer world and bringing it to the masses in the mainstream. Yeah. Made stripping it incredibly it from, simple. Yeah, which is, stripping it out from the jargon was. and everything else. And yeah. maybe to your point, maybe they did invent it in the sense that they from day one were like super deliberate about yeah. creating a category. So if you look at some of the early documents, like trailer documents and the way they talk about it, they were like, we're creating a new type of documentation. Mm-hmm. Blah, blah. I'm like, you're not creating anything new, but you know, just the way they spoke about it and the way they thought yeah. about it ended up being. That makes sense. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. How is it different than like all the other good. sales enablement? Yeah, good, kind of apps good, out good there? question. So it's a combination, I think, you know, so um, I can I can give you the story of, of Heresy because actually it ties into what I just said about Stack Overflow, because Heresy was ultimately born within Stack Overflow. So sure. when I joined Stack Overflow and I started building and scaling the sales organization here, I brought with me this um, seemingly crazy idea of applying agile best practice and, and certain tools mm-hmm. into the sales process. Hence why the company ended up being called Heresy. Because sure. um, the, the very idea of approaching sales, uh, the, the way an engineer would approach software development yeah. is heretic in the minds. We don't mix of, those things. Yeah. No, just, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, most people do think this. Yeah. You know, From the, the very basic notion of why, for example, the burnout chart goes top left to bottom right. You yeah. know, this is crazy. Why is it not going, you know, bottom left to top right? There's a good reason behind it, which I think we can dig into shortly. Yeah. But um, so Heresy started off at Stack Overflow uh, and we basically scaled the team using it uh, from uh, about two people on a joint to, you know, we ended up having like 120 people globally. And that was basically the driving force behind the growth and scale of the sales team of Stack Overflow. It's something that started just here in London because, you know, I was based here and I took it with me and I worked on the Agile sales idea here in London. But because we ended up, in a way, if you will, outperforming the other two sales teams, two sales offices in New York and Denver, in 2013, we took the decision to actually roll it out across 
the sales organization purely because we were getting better results and we were growing quicker. And there's certain positive externalities, if you were to use yeah. a term from economics, um, yeah. <laughs> where, where the team was basically benefiting from the process, not just from the things that kind of met the eye, you know, the forecasting reliability, um, um, the, the fact that everyone was on the same page, but also we ended up building a very different company culture, especially mm. in sales, uh, which in turn meant that more people were sticking around, hardly anyone was leaving. And then as a byproduct of that, you end up retaining a lot more knowledge and people are basically able to grow a lot quicker sure. and therefore ramp up quicker, etc. So if you're thinking of a SaaS business or any sales business, if you will, kind of business that is backed by an insight sales team, that's kind of the most important thing. You want to be able to grow quickly, the sales organization, and not just the headcount, but you want to basically be able to expand the collective knowledge on the team. So mm-hmm. it's a term that I like using, the wisdom of crowds. You know, yeah. the, the idea that the team is always smarter than even the smartest person in the room. And that's something that most sales teams, I think, are very bad at, because just because of the way sales teams are historically sure. set. You know, it's a very individualistic endeavor. Everyone yeah. is kind of working in their own silo. And when you think about this, the overall team, which is what you as a founder, CEO, sales leader should be concerned with, you never get to experience, you never get to grow the, the, the pace that you should be sure. uh, growing. So that's kind of the big premise around Agile Cell, kind of leveraging what sales engineers have been very good at, which is working together as a single unit to hit a common goal, in their case, shipping a product on time. In sales, meeting yeah. your monthly, quarterly, annual target, whatever. But the way it's been done in the traditional model is, I worry about my targets, you worry about yours, Shannon, Rich, and Dave worry about theirs, and hopefully at the end of the month or quarter, we we, we get to, to go. Yeah. And you know, the, the focus on Agile is basically getting everyone on the same page, thinking of it as a single unit, making sure that we uh, are very conscious and deliberate about hitting targets. Yeah. That's kind of the philosophy, and behind it, a bunch of tools, um, some seemingly uh, fairly simple, you yeah. know, like the burn down chart, which I mentioned, which kind of takes the focus on sales from activity to very goal-orientated and results-driven kind of sales. So you kind of start with your monthly goal or quarterly goal and you chart what the ideal progress to your goal would be with the idea that every single day, if you're doing a good job, you should have less and less work to do until at the end of the the sale um, cycle, you have hit your target. And then you track against that ideal um, velocity you track your actual performance. Sure. So Heresy basically is a combination of, of, of this, you know, as a simple example of a tool that we leverage, sprinkle with a bit of machine learning magic where we get to analyze historical data sprinkle. from yeah, yeah, Salesforce yeah. or whatever CRM you're using, and then we can apply uh, what we have discovered about the efficiency of your sales team back into the product so we can basically get predictive analytics uh, about where you're likely to end up. And we visualize all of this. So Heresy is very visual as well. Again, Yeah, it's um, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Again, something that engineers do very well is kind of visualize progress, and that's kind of what we try yeah. to do. And so to, to kind of back up a second, so traditional sales, like you kind of said, we, we have a concept of that where it's very individualistic, very um, you know quota-driven. Like agile sales, it's a little bit more collective. Mm. Like in, in it's one of those things where you've been in it so long. So yeah. I want to like back up and maybe like, so burn down chart, very similar engineering. Yeah. But there's it's weekly standups. Like yeah, yeah. go through go through yeah. kind of like what makes yeah. an agile sales team. Like yeah. what does that look like on, well, on a so, weekly basis? So yeah. let's start with the team. So number one would be the team structure, for example. Sure. So if you're thinking of scaling a sales organization, normally it will be kind of this unit that keeps on ballooning and ballooning and ballooning as you add more and more bodies to it. Yep. And that's okay in a way, at least you think it's okay, but what ends, ends up happening is the more people you have in the team, the less conversations you have, mm. purely because you cannot enable it happening, and the less 
cohesive the team is and the fewer uh, opportunities to learn, grow and develop collectively you have. So one of the things that, you know, we kind of stole or borrowed, whichever way you want to think um, about it from uh, sales engineering, is the idea of having teams of teams. So instead of having a single sales organization, even a single sales team, uh, I keep on pointing behind us because Stack Overflow is literally <laughs> across the road. <laughs> I love it. Um, but the reason why you know we were very good at scaling the sales team or Stack Overflow, especially here in London, was because we ended up building a sales organization which was comprised of, uh, comprised of small individual teams. So say in London, we ended up with about 45, 48 people in sales. And instead of having a sales team of 48, we basically have five or six teams of five to six individuals, mm-hmm. sometimes eight, you know, depending, sure. but very small. And each single team acts as an independent unit. Mm-hmm. Um, so they basically uh, are selling as if they are sort of a, a sales organization of their, their own. Sure. And then all the teams in the office come together to produce the number for uh, Europe. Yeah. And then the same dynamic is replicated in Denver, yeah, New York, yeah. et cetera. So you end up with all of these little teams. And you know what it allows you to do is number one, if you go back and connect the burn down chart, every single salesperson on one of these teams of five or six, whatever it happen to be, will have their own burn down, tracking their own progress to goal. If you have five individuals, you combine the burn downs and that gives you a burn down for the team. Sure. Then you put together teams in the office, that gives you a burn down for the office. Mm-hmm. And then you put the offices together, you have one of the organization. Sure. So from a very simple sales management and leadership standpoint, what this enables you to do on a day-to-day basis is you can literally within, the, uh, within a few clicks, mm. figure out if something is going wrong, if, for example, the way you're tracking against Go is beginning to deviate from how you should be, where the problem is. Instead of spending hours digging through a CRM and having conversations with your reps, et cetera, or your managers being like, what's going on? You can literally see which office, for example, that's how we did it. You know, We would look at, say, when I fall in behind Go, we would look at the number for Stack Overflow, Okay, we're not where we should be. Which office is it? Oh, it's like, say, uh, London. And then we'll see which team it is within London, or which teams, and then which individuals. And then you can quickly drill into the specific deals as to why something didn't happen. And you can basically fix things before it's too late. Because it's all dollar-based, right? It depends on whatever currency. Sure. Yeah, Stack Overflow it was dollar-based. But it's all cash that you're measuring? Or is it like, because traditional sales, right? You have, you know, lead, opportunity, yeah. et cetera. Like, are these burn-down charts, like... These, these teams of five or six with their burndown charts, is it all like the amount of cash they're closing? Is the amount of cash, it... you know, the, the burndowns is okay. the amount of cash that we're closing. And, you know, in a way that should be kind of the primary metric in a way that uh, you think of. And, you know, from there on, you know, if the burndown doesn't look right, you can see as to why that is happening. Sure. You know, then you can look at... So do those teams of five or six, do they, do they produce their own leads? I know a stack, it's a little bit different because they're, I'm assuming it's a lot of inbound or... No, no, it was mostly no, no. Now, now I <laughs> yeah. think you know. Well, when I so when when I joined them, it was sure. hardly any any inbound at all yeah. because everyone knew Stack Overflow from the developer community. You know, sure. every developer was using it, or at least a lot of developers were using it. Yeah. But they had just started building the um, the talent product, mm-hmm. which at the time was called Careers 2.0 by Stack Overflow, which sure. morphed into Stack Overflow Careers and then ended up being Stack Overflow Talent, Got which it. is what their product offering uh, on the talent side is called today. But no one knew about it. Yeah. So it was heavy outbound from, from day one. And in the case of Stack Overflow, uh, it was predominantly cold outreach connecting with people. And with that in mind, a lot of salespeople on the team created their own leads. Sure. There was Stack Overflow to date. I think they're kind of changing this now, but you know, for, for the time I was there, never had yeah. an SDR team generating leads and qualifying. It was a full so that, stack yeah. model. As a salesperson, you're responsible for generating your own leads unless you're yeah. getting, of course you're getting support Some from marketing, yeah, but yeah, yeah. 
You basically are in full control of generating your own leads, qualifying them, going after them, closing them, and even managing them, kind of upselling them and cross-selling was your responsibility. And so those teams of five or six, are they self-organizing into That's... like, these three are gonna go after leads, these two are gonna close, or is it more like, I mean, I no, guess every full, team can yeah. be different. Yeah. yeah, it's a full stack. So uh, the, the the structure of the team is the full. So everyone on the team is selling. So that's one of the you know that's one of the things that we advocate with Argent Sales is that you have a clear separation between organizing the team cadence and being in charge of the team cadence, which falls on the team itself, and then having an external manager, if you will, who basically is responsible for overall people development and making you a better salesperson. You know, training and in dealing with interpersonal issues that you might have at home or whatever it might be, because those sure. are things that will affect your sales performance. Totally. So there's a separation between the two. The teams themselves, you know, the, the idea is that you end up with a purely self-organized team. And again, the reason why we say this is because if you're thinking of scaling, you know, the one thing that gets in the way of scaling is the ability for the team to learn and develop. So sure. if you can basically leverage, as I mentioned earlier, the wisdom of crowd, you're making your own job as a sales leader much easier. Mm. You know, the amount of conversation I can have one-on-one -on -one with my people is limited. The amount of conversation they can have, have between them, yeah. especially if who have built the right infrastructure and the right culture for them to, to have those conversations can take you from here to here in a much shorter time than the amount of time sure. it will take for me to go and work with every single one of them. So the way the teams are structured, you have a bunch of team members, everyone basically is selling and everyone has a target, that, you know, a quota that they're carrying. And there's one person who acts as a player coach. So as a team leader, equivalent would be the role of a scrum master, if you will, from, from Scrum and Agile. So that person basically is responsible for driving the cadence on the team. So they would be in charge of running a stand-up. Now, to your point earlier, is it, it's not daily. We, we never said do it daily because in software development, it makes sense to have a conversation daily because I can get through a certain amount of code and we can ship X amount of users. Hey, I'm having this day. problem. Can you unblock me? Yeah. yeah. In, in sales, even if it's like fairly transactional sale, probably a day is not enough for me to have done enough meaningful work for us to have a conversation where I can tell you something that you can learn and you know I can, I can make you a better salesperson or sure. I can learn something that will make me a better salesperson. So the way we do the Stack Overflow, the forecasting cycle was monthly, so every single month the team was expected to hit a certain number. And therefore we had four sprints, each one being roughly uh, five days. Got it. So the way the sprints run will be first business day of the month, you have the first sprint starting, and then five days from there, a new sprint starts, etc. So the idea was that at the beginning of every sprint, you have a stand-up where you will talk about blockers, as you mentioned, what we have done, what we're expecting to do, what didn't happen, and for whatever reason, that was like that was really important, still is. You know, not just talking about successes, but what can we learn from common failures? So the idea is that if we're constantly adding more people to the team, uh, we don't want them to be banging their heads against the wall trying to figure out the works that doesn't work by themselves. If I can hear it from someone yeah. who's literally spent I don't know, two weeks, like two months maybe, working on a deal that was lost, tell me about it so I don't do the same mistake. Or sure. if something worked really well for you, tell me about it so I can replicate your success. Mm. Standards basically are like every five days, more or less, at least a stack overflow and uh, given their sales cycle, that's how we, we did it. Uh, and we also have a little uh, sprint review, which you know technically you should be doing at the end of the sprint, but because they overlap, you always do it at the same time, yeah. which basically is the team getting together, looking at the shape of the burn down and trying to understand how each person mm. contributed, why things didn't work, why they worked, etc. And also taking a commitment for the next sprint, the next five days. What mm. deals are we going to close? Where do you think we're going to be? And then that gives us uh, a, a commitment from the team. You know, I'm not telling you you should close X, Y, and Z, but the team yeah. says, 
I'm going to close do this. Exactly. Yeah. So you have like, for lack of better words, social pressure in a way to deliver. But you also don't want to disappoint your teammates if you've committed to closing X amount of deals and saying, I'm going to be contributing X amount to the team's success. The pressure is on you to deliver. Um, but actually it gives you, from a, again, from a sales leadership standpoint, a clearer vision of where you're going to be in the next five days instead of the traditional problems you have in sales, waiting until the end of the month and everything kind of drops there. Sure. And that's kind of one of the um, big takeaways, at least for me, from software development, kind of breaking down the amount yeah. of work that you have to do into smaller sprint so you can kind of plan better and even if everything was expecting because again in sales you know often a lot is out of your control even if you expected most of your deals to to close in in like the third sprint or the fourth sprint etc you kind of know and you're not really panicking Uh, and if that's the case and you're dealing with a very large team you can try to leverage that and make sure that other teams basically close the gap in sprint one and two so you're kind of nicely tracking along the model sure it's, it's a difficult concept to, to explain in the short period of time as we have, yeah. and also very difficult without kind of going crazy on the whiteboard. Yeah. And, and, um, it's exactly what you said, you're bringing engineering principles to sales, which I think are super important. Mm-hmm. But I also like the aspect of, if you think about where a lot of growth teams are going, yeah. like in particular, like you look at Spotify, Uber, et cetera, yeah. like the, the decentralization of teams, smaller teams, et cetera. Yeah. I think it's helpful. I think it's, I mean, it's, like the, the Aaron Ross predictable revenue model is very well known, yeah. right? Like it's yeah. a very well known, it works, you know, it has its faults. And I think this is kind of the evolution of that. Yeah. And, and what I'm curious about is that at Stack, did you, or even, you know, your customers using this, yeah. do you notice that certain teams, like at Stack, was there a team that naturally was like, we're going to be the big deals team versus we're going to be the high volume team? Like, yeah. was there, was there that kind of happening? Well, we did, we did that. Uh, from the top in a way because okay. yeah so so we had you know the 120 people that I mentioned the overall sales organization we had a geographical split so we had Europe for example my team here was EMEA so they basically sure. had geographical restrictions as to you know what accounts they can target the two offices in in, in the US the same geographical restrictions if you will applied and then in terms of deal size uh, we had a strategic accounts uh, team which was basically targeting companies that can generate x amount of revenue over the course of of the year so they were assessed differently and the sale forecasting cycle was different there as well larger deals which took normally longer to close etc so there was that split So it wasn't something that the team individually decided on what to work. The way we did it is like, this is the work that needs to be done. How you do it, it's up to you. It kind of allows you to be creative and, you know, instead of dialing for dollars, which is kind of the common perception of sales, it can actually be a very creative process and more enjoyable, I think. Because ABM is now all the rage, right? Like, have you heard account-based marketing where... I mean, it's it's definitely a little bit a little bit kind of like the middle of this. I feel like, do you see? And it's also kind of like sales ten years ago, and we just made a new name for it. But like, do you see like a where do you see this kind of fitting into? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, um, I like it. Yeah. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. In fact, um, so one of the the aspects of uh, you know in terms of toolage that we didn't touch upon with Agile there was the use of a Scrum board or Kanban board. Yeah. The very column to the left in, you know, even in Heresy in our product is called a backlog. If you think of like traditional sales, like when I joined Stack Overflow, and so I flew to New York to meet the team and everything else and um, uh, met the two people in the sales team, the existing sales team at the time. And one of them had like a list of accounts that he wanted to target mm-hmm. written, like a sheet of A4 written on his desk and a bunch of post-its on his computer screen, That's you know, like 20 each monitor. 
uh, like covered in posters of people who he wanted to and companies who he wanted to keep in front of his eyes so he can target them throughout the course of the yeah. year. And he used to be mocked, you know, by certain people being like, oh, the hit list and everything else. But that's how it works. You definitely want to have that list because especially if you're in a high volume sales environment or if you're, you know, if you're kind of trying to uh, carve out a new market, which Stack was doing at the time, there's so many opportunities in front of you. You can easily forget about the opportunities which matter. They might take a lot longer to close, but you know, do you want to keep them in front of you? So one of the early things that it did with you know, where, where the, the methodology kind of was started was getting you know, what this person, for example, was doing and what many other people do and just formalizing a little bit and saying, okay, the accounts that you're working in the long term, put them in this column called the backlog, which is almost like your wish list. The accounts that you want to close in the course of the year, you know, the yeah. you know the quarter, whatever, which is how, you know, account-based marketing yeah, yeah, yeah. works in a way. So you're saying, okay, if we were to meet our target at the end of the month, these are the accounts that we're going to, to sell. Sure. And now, you know, Agile Sales take this to, you know, one step further, which is saying, okay, now that we've got these accounts, this is the list, what am I going to do in the next quarter? Which accounts am I going to work in the next quarter? So you take X amount of accounts from the, the backlog, you know, the, yeah. the hit list, and transfer them into this quarter. And if my goal for the quarter is like 250, I basically should have enough coverage to get me there. Step further, you go even further, which is to say, okay, well, this is the quarter, but let's think of, you know, the sprints. Is everything going to close at the end of the quarter? Which is very often what salespeople will tell you. And it's not their fault. I think a lot of this is byproduct of uh, bad software design. If you think of the CRM and the way it's designed, it basically allows you to pick a date. And as a salesperson, you don't have a crystal clear vision of what the future holds. So to hedge the risk of being wrong, you would say, eh, end of the month, end of the quarter. So if you were to visualize this on a burn down, you always look, this is your model. Yeah. And then you expect the performance is a straight line because you're not selling, in theory, anything. And then in the last day, yeah. all the deals drop. As a sales manager, even as a salesperson, you don't want to see that. As an operator, you don't yeah, want to see that. Yeah, you definitely don't want to do that. So what we're doing with Agile Sales and Heresy is basically giving you a different way of thinking, which kind of encourages you to say, okay, well, I don't have a, you know, the perfect vision of the future, but what I do know is I can take a little bit more of an educated guess as to when those opportunities that have just pulled from the backlog might, uh, might come into the quarter, and you give yourself like a 20-day, 30-day, whatever you sprints happen to be buffer, and then you can visualize your expected performance on the burn down. Yeah. And that is incredibly powerful, because A, you can see where you're going to be five days from now, 20 days from now, at the end of the quarter, and then with Heresy, as you go along, we basically match what yeah. has happened. Uh, and then we have like a bunch of machine learning uh, forecasting filters yeah, yeah. built into it, which actually tell you how you're progressing and where you're going to be at the end of the month. Yeah. Things that take into consideration the likelihood of a deal closing based on you know who the rep in question is, what the likelihood of a deal closing in that particular stage of the pipeline is, what the remaining pipeline tendency is the size of the deal, et cetera. So we're kind of, you know, going back to what you asked me earlier, what makes it special. It's not just the, the process, which was where we started, but it's also leveraging big data machine learning AI in a way, kind of yeah. meeting, meeting in the middle. Because cool. a lot of the stuff that we did at Stack, if 90% was basically just pure process. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I would use to stand up for my own benefit was to kind of get an idea of where the team is going to be. So I feel... Yeah. You know, I can get some better sleep at night. It's I like that. Like, oh, I don't know where we're going to be. Well, you now, can better predict and like run your business. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's cool. And, and now what we're doing is basically taking the team's world, but also based on historical data, we can say, ooh, you know, we're not quite going to be there. What can we do now to mitigate the risk of actually not being there? Because we know that's going to happen, yeah. you know? So that's kind of that's where cool. we're going, yeah. And to, to pivot a little bit, you were at Stack and now running Heresy and founding Heresy. 
those are the, those are kind of the two big types of companies that are in London, right? You have a lot of like like US companies setting yeah. up their European shops here yeah. and you have a lot of like startups that are starting up, yeah. right? And I know over the past like five, six years, like stuff has just kind of exploded um, globally, but also like in London specifically, yeah. like is, is that pretty much sums up the ecosystem that that stack or do I have that kind of incorrect? No, I think I think, you you know, you got it pretty bang on. I think I mean, it depends how we define tech startups and tech. But sure. I think London had, you know, if you think of agencies, London has for a very long time had a very strong agency scene, creatives, etc. Like the like likes of AKQA, etc. You know. London-based companies. You also have a lot of really good media companies, and of course, the city. You know, London is one of the world's financial capitals, if not the financial capital. So you have a lot of uh, uh, interesting ecosystems at play here, kind of more traditional ones, uh, and a lot of talent now. We've seen, as you mentioned, over the, the course of the last, you know, six, seven years, moving from those traditional industries into into you know traditional tech startups and starting businesses. And you've seen a huge rise in the number of fintech startups, for example. Yeah. A lot of people from the city have the knowledge show and the d- domain expertise moving and starting their own businesses. Same with media, same with fashion, in sure. a way, et cetera. When the social media revolution took place, you know, when everyone was going crazy uh, about Twitter, you know, I'm talking like nine years ago, whatever, yeah. London was um, the, the Twitter capital of the world. You had the, oh, you knew, right? Like, I think you had the highest density or the highest number of people on Twitter out of anywhere else in London. So that's, that's crazy. So there's a lot happening here. But to your point, yeah, um, a lot of traditional startups, scale-ups, tech companies from uh, from the US have chosen to to make London their home. It used to be the case that title went to Dublin. You know, the HQ abroad went to, to Dublin for obvious reasons, tax yeah. and whatnot. But I think in terms of talent, London has a lot more to offer. I mean, city is humongous, right? Yeah. It's like a big city. Dublin's tiny. And also, and we are yet to see how Brexit affects this, but historically it has been a melting pot with people coming from all over Europe. I mean, I myself, am, you know, I'm an immigrant, yeah. right? I wasn't born here. I've yeah. lived here for 17 years, but I'm originally from Bulgaria. So yeah. you still have tons of people from Eastern Europe. Um, you know, you and I met in, in Latvia, right? You have all yeah. of these people coming here and kind of contributing to the ecosystem. Uh-huh. So it's, I can talk years off. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that I would say, which is kind of, has been, I think, problematic for London is the fact that, historically at least, you seem to hit a, not even a plateau, but a ceiling fairly early on, often because of lack of funding, yeah. even talent in a way, but kind of once you hit a certain scale, because we haven't had, at least in the past, big companies coming out of London and kind of being built here, mid-level management, for lack of a better term, was just not here, so people choose to go abroad in the U- US uh, mainly to kind of carry on scaling. I think that is gradually changing. I mean, even like, say with Stack Overflow, when we started in 2011, completely from the ground up, you know, just myself and building a team. Now you can probably, you know, they're like half a dozen, if not like more than that, experienced managers, both, you know, marketing, uh, sales, engineering. So if you're thinking of building and scaling a business here, you know, you actually have the kind of next level of talent here as well. But that historically was a problem. It's interesting. Um, and is it just because of like the tech orientation? Because you have you have agencies, you have media, you have finance, like you said, and there's obviously like old school managers and middle yeah. management there. Like, is it just been more like those people don't want to jump to tech, just similar to like the money? They, yeah, I don't know. It's not that they don't want to jump to tech, but if you think of like a company that goes from like 
five to like 500 people in the space of a few years, a couple of years, yeah. that's a very different business to run, right? And sure. Again, going back to that particular gap in the market in terms of like mid-level senior management, I was just not here. There weren't, you know, we didn't have Yahoo so that Google can, you know, hire and then, you know, Google so that Facebook can hire or Microsoft, whatever. Uh, but that is changing. You know, they, as you said, a lot of American companies are here now. They yeah. have built successful offices. A lot of people have grown and developed over the course of the last five, six, seven years. Um, and I think London is, is getting stronger by the day. Yeah. Again, the one thing that remains to be seen is, you know, what Brexit does to this. Yeah. Do you find that the, the kind of HQs coming over, like the US HQs, is that really good for you guys in terms of basically being able to hire? Like they train, sometimes they relocate some, some of those like middle managers, et cetera. Like yeah. have you seen that ecosystem starting to brew a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, just it's, 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 it's great. I mean, the more companies we have, it's, it's good for everyone, right? Yeah. More talent, more people moving from elsewhere, etc. cetera. Uh, as I said, the, the, the question is, would the UK be able to uh, retain its competitiveness? Sure. You know, just the other day, there was like a massive cock up with the EMI uh, option scheme. Um, not to bore you, but you know that's basically a huge incentive for anyone joining the company early on, and you know it seems yeah. like we might be able to, we might lose it. Well, it's so, even it's just even interesting with like laws, right? Because like GDPR used to be you were just kind of included in it, yeah. and now it's like you you don't really have a choice because most yeah. people don't just sell into the UK. But it's kind of interesting, like yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, don't even want to go there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's been crazy. Yeah, and, and do you find like with, with Brexit specifically, like, is it something you worry about, like giving a, a, a up and coming startup or is it something you're kind of like, eh, we're just going to keep racing our own race. It's probably not going to affect us as much. No, I think everyone is going to be affected one way or another. The way I, I see it though, is there's very little that I, I can do, or, you know, founders in the ecosystem can do. I think in terms of affecting the course of events, you sure. know, the one thing that we could do is go and vote didn't go our way, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, we'll have a very different outcome if the referendum was to be held again today. But, you know, that aside, there's very little we can do. I think the only thing which is within your control is should things kind of start moving south fairly quickly, which, as I said, you know, by the looks of things might happen, is where you go from, from you know, from there. You know, do you relocate your company? Do you, do you go to yeah. the US? Do you go, I don't know, elsewhere? Yeah. Do you go to Asia, you know? If things continue on the path, do you think that's what a lot of founders are going to do? Like, even um, if they just hop over and go to Paris, well, maybe not France, because yeah, France's laws are yeah, a little I was stringent. Say, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Berlin, obviously, is, sure. is, you know, is being up and coming. You know, going back to our previous conversation around US companies relocating to Europe, I've seen a lot more companies choosing Amsterdam as their HQ. Oh, I've seen them too, yeah. yeah. I don't think London is the necessarily the go-to place anymore, again, and Brexit has certainly contributed to yeah. kind of that dilemma, um, yeah. you know, becoming harder. Where do we go now, you know? Yeah, yeah. Before it was like, it was Dublin, then it was Dublin in London. I mean, even from like a cost perspective, like a place like Berlin, way cheaper, yeah. way, way cheaper. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. A huge shout out to Dimitar for doing the pod. Now you have what it takes to be an expert in agile sales. Today, we talk about having a clear understanding of value, consolidating talent and tools, the efficiency of agile sales, maintaining target accounts, and how to navigate funding. Oh, and if you want to support Paddle and the show, we would greatly appreciate it if you left a five-star review of the podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. The podcast gods tend to like that type of thing, and we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.